HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll, Lord knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte. In the studio today, we're going to be talking shop with Leif Hockman and Jeremy Ortel from Donna in South Williamsburg on Broadway between Wythe and Kent, uh, a, a fairly new place um, that just opened recently, and it's a very lovely, romantic spot with great cocktails and Good vibes, and welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us, man. Yeah, thanks for Absolutely. Um, so, give me, uh, give me like the Cliff's Notes, like rundown of what the uh, like the mission statement and idea behind Donna was when you came to uh, decide to open a bar. Yeah, no kidding. Um, well, we're uh, we're five and a half months in now, and um, what happened was about about three years ago. Uh, I had I was managing for Santos Party House, and I'd been bumming around managing for restaurants and bars and clubs, and got to a point where I was fed up because I couldn't I couldn't change the things that I wanted to change because it wasn't within my authority to do so, and so I decided to get out of Manhattan for a second and went to go bartend at Marlowe and Sons, which was right around the corner from where I lived. Which was an amazing place to work because of the quality of produce and product that they had in there and the seriousness with which the staff took the entire project that, you know, working at a restaurant can be something that people uh, don't care about very much. And it's nice to be in a place uh, that takes itself seriously, but in a very friendly and casual way. And so at that place, I started to really come to the idea that I was either going to change my life entirely and go back to school or do something else, but I didn't dislike my life. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the restaurant industry. I enjoyed the socialness of it and being convivial, you know. Um, and I decided, I was like, well, I think I could, 
if I was going to do anything that I had a really clear vision about, it would be to open up a bar. And that's where Donna began. And it was bits and pieces of the fa- my, my favorite places I'd worked for or been or had frequented. And for me, that was about creating a space that was, um, well, what I had said before was like an elegant space for dirty kids, you know, <laughs> a, a place that, because I'm 31 now, I can't, I don't really want to go to a dive bar every night of the week. I do sometimes, you know, but sometimes sure. I, I want to have dinner at Marlowe and Sons and then walk down the street and have a great cocktail in a space that's just as beautiful or just as transportive. And um, I wanted to create a space that was like that, but where you could also avoid some of the um, uh, the stuffiness of other cocktail bars uh, and where you could maybe get a beer and a shot and hang out and maybe there's a band playing or maybe there's a DJ playing some like rock and roll music, you know, Don't. and f- find a way to meld these two worlds um, that was really based on, I think, uh, a space that the neighborhood didn't have before and one that I thought I could execute at a high level, something I could be really proud of and that's... That's how we got to where we, we got to now. That's great. I mean, like some of the elements that I like about it, I mean, like it's like just as far as like the welcoming atmosphere of the space itself. Um, you have the bar is beautiful, um, but then you have these really great, like cool, like kind of vaulted ceilings yeah. and you actually have windows that open out to the street, <laughs> right. you know? So it, like with so many cocktail dens and, and like speakeasy style bars, you have, you know, uh, you got to walk through a secret door and a weird secret handshake right. or what, you know, you have to <laughs> yeah. jump through hoops just to get in and right. sit down at the bar. Which I think, I think for some of those spaces are, th- those become attractive qualities to an extent, you know, when you really want to have sure. that experience. But um, sometimes you also, I think, want to just be able to go to a place on the regular, you know, yeah. and not not have to really feel like you have to go into a uh, a different mindset or dress up for it or something like that, you know. Sure. And and that's I think that's important about a neighborhood bar. It needs to be welcoming. It needs to be inviting and and open. And with Donna specifically, um, also I think in in contrast to some of the other bars, there's a real feminine quality to it. Yeah, um, absolutely. Which which I felt was important because a lot of the bars that you go into kind of feel like, you know, masculine dungeony spaces. Yeah. It's a bunch of, a bunch of dudes. <laughs> it's a bunch of dudes doing, nerding doing out dude on shit. some, you know, <laughs> stuff, which is totally cool, you know, but, um, I, I walk into Donna sometimes and I'm like, it's like 90% women in, in here. You That's know? great. I'm going to go there after the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though, right? I mean, yeah, it has no, a really, sometimes I look in there and I'm just, I just can't believe it's, it's almost always girls. <laughs> yeah, that's that's like I said. I'm going after the show. Um, so, like, yeah, I mean, like I was saying before with the architecture, like it has even like you know it's it's curvy mm-hmm. and and elegant mm-hmm. and yeah, definitely feminine. Yeah, you know, so it's it's not only inviting for people to come in and like sit down and have a drink, but you. You want to like hang out there for a while, yeah. And uh, you know, a lot of times with cocktail bars, you you go in and you're like, oh, I'm gonna like spend you know thirteen to twenty bucks on this cocktail, and then I'm like on my way somewhere else. And with that place, it does have that neighborhood kind of quality to it. Yeah, and I think you bring up another point, which is that the other I think 
um, excluding factor with a lot of those cocktail bars for, you know, for people, I mean, even if we're working in the industry and we're getting purchased around here and there or all the time, you know, like <laughs> uh, it's, it's expensive to go to some of those places. And, and if you want to be able to have a good drink and it costs you 13 to $16 to get it, um, you're probably only going to have like one. You know, at least, yeah. I mean, in, in, the, in my income bracket, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think um, keeping our cocktail prices low was something that, I, you know, I talked about with Jeremy from the very beginning when we first met, because um, I think that's also another aspect of having an, an inviting space that kids, that my friends could hang out in and not feel like they could only do it on a special occasion. Sure. Or maybe, you know, maybe they're going to have that, that cocktail first and then they'll follow it up with a $4 beer and that's sure. totally okay too. And that's awesome. Yeah. That's great. You know, yeah. we talk about this a lot on this show, you know, uh, we'll, we'll ask, you know, the, all the guests that come on, like what their favorite drink is. And at the end of the day, a lot of them are like, you know, these are like big names in like cocktail culture right. and bartending mm-hmm. and they're like a bud and a shot of Fernet, <laughs> exactly, you know, and yeah. it's like, they, they, it's yeah. pretty much consistent across the board. It's yeah. like, it's either like a cheap beer and a whiskey, or mm. a cheap beer and some sort of amaro. Mm-hmm. And you know, we we work so much on workshopping these these cocktails. And you know, uh, recently we talked about you know it takes 50, 50 tries to come up with the right cocktail. Sure. And I was talking with my even a buddy last night, and we were talking about how like even like Don the Beachcomber and like Trader Vic and those guys like oh, this has exactly three drops of absinthe in it not two not seven has three Mm -hmm. and if you do it any other way it's going to be completely fucked up and it's not going to taste right so there's so much workshopping and stuff that goes into it by the end of the day like we're we're just like burned out on it and we're like let's let's have a round of beers man yeah (laughs) even like even working a whole shift you know tasting drink after drink after drink i mean by the end of it you just want whiskey and a tecate or something you know yeah absolutely um you know and I i think it's funny too because a lot a lot of a lot of the skill, you know, there are people, the people who make those kind of beverages that are really special um, have a real skill. They have to be super tasters. They, re- they really have to know those kind of minute variations that make that the difference between a well-balanced and complex cocktail and a cocktail that just has a bunch of bullshit in it, you know. And I think that um, most people, when they walk into a space, they're not super tasters. They don't know. And if you sell it with confidence, they'll still enjoy it. That doesn't mean that one should trump the other, you know. Sure. But at the same time, like there's – you have to educate the clientele who comes in here to be able to notice those nuances, you know. Now, that doesn't mean they, may, they might not already enjoy it, but to really pick out all those tiny little details that are going on. Give me an example of that. I would say um, – well, I mean, I guess probably. Well, like I guess, I guess, like with a even a, like a simple cocktail, like a Manhattan, like a classic cocktail, sure. like that. Um, making small variations in uh, the vermouths that you're going to choose mm-hmm. that go into it, uh, the balance of vermouth if you're going to go all the way sweet or if you're going to do a perfect. Um, or I can split. Your sweet vermouth. I always mm-hmm. split my sweets, like in a Negroni and a Manhattan. I always do Carpano and Dolan. Yeah, of course. You know, and, and which I, that's actually my preference as well. I mean, I, I prefer a perfect Manhattan to a sweet Manhattan. Um, most people will come in ordering Manhattan and order it with bourbon, right? And 
Um, they're looking for bourbon and sweet vermouth and garnish with a cherry or something like that. Still, I mean, to this day, sure. even though there's been there's like, you know, dozens of cocktail bars that are that are you know, uh, educating uh, against that. Um, but um, people, I, I think I think once you're able to show them these subtle differences in using vermouths that are also preserved appropriately. They're not sitting in a well for right. a year, you know, getting disgusting. Um, their palate starts to become more sensitive, and then that, that creates, a, I think, a better customer, especially for our type of bar, over time, because they're more discerning, and they're going to appreciate the things that come into it. Yeah. So give me, uh, give me a rundown of, like, what you guys have on the menu as far as, like, I know that before the show, Jeremy and I were talking about like you know the Phil Ward approach to classics, and then swapping out ingredients to make new cocktails. You know, for instance, you know, I can't remember who this. It might have been Delagraff or something. Uh, but um, talking about just like pretty much any classic cocktail, you can add a little bit of like fruit eau de vie. Mm-hmm. You know, any kind of like distilled like brandy to a, a classic, and then it takes on this whole new level and it goes into a different direction like how are you guys doing that there um so i've been working with phil for a little while and i've been kind of inspired by you know seeing what he did with my well because some of those drinks are my favorite drinks to drink period um so i kind of started a lot of those a lot of my ideas from you know that direction you know thinking oh well this is a great drink maybe i can you know use these ingredients to sort of get this sort of flavor you know but sort of using them as templates to, to sure to start with. Um, and then also we were doing Central American, like sort of Latin food. Um, so fitting that theme, I thought we could use a lot of rum, which is also really helpful when you're trying to keep your costs down. Cause as we know, rum is yeah. relatively cheap. So, you know, we were thinking about doing a lot of rum based cocktails, but then also kind of not everybody wants rum, you know, so we're doing some tequila and mezcal, trying to keep a small list, but you know, having something for everybody. Absolutely. Well, that's that's the whole goal, really. Is like mm-hmm. having something for everyone. You can't have everything for everyone, but you need to have yeah. something for everyone. Well, and, th- and this idea of also doing s- simple variations of classics, so that it, because you know, if you the classic cocktails have existed for so long because they're they're well balanced and they're you know they they hit a certain part of our palate that is just it's generally pleasing. And to do a house cocktail list, I think you should be able to. It's it's really your identity comes from that list. So you want to be able to have a strong identity, but one that isn't, uh, again, just like kind of like a grab bag of ingredients sure. thrown together. And, um, you know, I've been really impressed with the work that Jeremy did in, in terms of that. And one, uh, variations that were surprising, too, like, like the broncolata, where he's using broncamenta, which is an, an incredibly difficult it's a difficult spirit to mess around with i mean you'll see it as rinses or I, yeah. i'll disagree with you because i use the shit out of <laughs> really? bronca and broncamenta really yeah i mean i Damon i have tomorrow's yeah i mean i have been generally disappointed by cocktails that utilize oh damn he's showing us a tattoo <laughs> <laughs> but i mean this is a spirit that we all really enjoy to drink uh solo most of the time or maybe like you know you see people do like fernet and coke um fernet con coke yeah, yeah. Which so, is awesome. Which is actually like that kind of fits the bill with like you, you were talking about the uh, Central American and South American fair, you know, um, yep. Fernet con Coca being like yep. the official drink of Argentina. Totally. Yeah. You know, um, 
Yeah, so I mean, we have simple things like the rum and coke on the menu, but we use Mexican coke, a little mm-hmm. squeeze of lime, a couple of dashes of Angostura, mm-hmm. put it in a big fancy hurricane glass, you know, so it's not yeah. just mm-hmm. your average rum See, and coke. I love that. I love that, man. You know, there, there are certain drinks like, like you said, like a rum and coke mm-hmm. or like a gin and tonic that have been so bastardized over the years right. that are simple and and refreshing and they hit the mark, you know, mm-hmm. and... I always say that a gin and tonic shouldn't be just gin and tonic. Yeah. You know, I always try to make them like, you know, Spanish style, like where it's, you've got some different fruits in there, maybe some maraschino, some absinthe, you know, you got to church it up, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I love that you're doing that with this menu, you know, mm-hmm. that's also, it goes back to like the, the simplicity and also the very welcoming nature of what you guys are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's such a backlash nowadays against like the everything in the kitchen sink, you know, style cocktails and to, to nail it, you know, with just the minimal amount of, of ingredients right? and to make it refreshing and welcoming and delicious. I mean, it's like one of the, one of the greatest riffs on a classic cocktail, which, you know, Don the Beachcomber did the QB cooler. And then, uh, that was nine ingredients. And then, Trader Vic did the Mai Tai, which is a riff mm-hmm. on it. And if you put them side by side, it's pretty it's pretty hard to tell which one is which. Mm. Yeah. You know? But taking that from nine ingredients to five ingredients yeah. and nailing it, and mm-hmm. which one do you hear about more? The Mai yeah, Tai or the Kiwi Cooler? Yeah, totally. You know? So yeah. that's a perfect example of like just killing it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> with uh with uh like ingenuity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another the, fun drink that we did that the um just the daiquiri, the Donna daiquiri. I just, you know, having bartenders come into like Dram where I was working before and always ordering daiquiris with their own little, you know, they want this rum and this rum and, you know, an ounce of lime juice for three quarter simple or cane mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, and then thinking, wow, I just want to make one that's like, you know, a blend of rums I pick and just try to get everybody to drink daiquiri, you know, have this mission to like get everybody to drink a daiquiri because people are some. You know, they think it's a joke when they ask me, what's your favorite drink to drink? And I say, well, daiquiri, you know, and they're like, oh, yeah, you're kidding me, right? Well, that's because, again, it's been bastardized, man. It, it has, you know? yeah. And I'm like, you know, People think of, like, a crushed ice and, you know, it looks like a snow, yeah. snow cone or something. Um, yeah, but, like, I think across the board, most bartenders that I've talked to um, will say that that is their favorite drink even over a Manhattan. Obviously, mm-hmm. a Manhattan is kind of a perfect drink. Yeah. It's three ingredients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a really easy to remember formula and it's always delicious. I think that the, the daiquiri and, and the gimlet too, it's like, you know, that's kind of, yeah. that becomes a benchmark for a good bartender. You give them a simple cocktail like that because it's so easy to mess up because it's so simple. That's a good point. You know, like even going back to Phil Ward, he said, you know, there are so many bartenders out there nowadays. It's a great thing that we're enthusiastic about our craft and that it's come to the spotlight and we're we're back on track, you know, because mm-hmm. we went through some dark decades mm-hmm. there totally. for a while. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, it's like new bartenders need to learn the fundamentals and like not only in technique, uh, but in recipes, you mm-hmm. know, know how to make a French 75. Yeah, you know the well, right way, and because I think co- what's fascinating about once you once you break the code of cocktail making is that it becomes almost like a Rubik's cube where 
all cocktails are interrelated in this really interesting historical way. And the names are prolific. There's so many different names. However, it's really, they're just twists on all of these other classics sure. that had come before it. And it's like you change out lemon for lime and you end up in a different cocktail category or a different cocktail family. It's a sour instead of a good one. It's exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and this happens again and again and again. Um, and once you once you are kind of awakened to that, that's I think when, when cocktail making becomes really fun because um, you feel like you're a part of this this history and Absolutely. this baton that's getting passed through, through the generations that I think maybe got dropped for a couple of decades and maybe maybe 30 years, you know, and has been picked back up by the likes of, you know, Sasha Petrovsky and, yeah. and all those that have followed um, Phil Ward, you know, and um, us who are students of that, um, uh, you know, I'm grateful to have been in New York during the time in which that came back. That that's just a fluke. That I was lucky enough to find the right bar gig with the right bartenders who are willing to give me the training. Yeah. And now I get to kind of give my response to that, which is which is Donna, and for which you know, Jeremy has uh, a, I think achieved a really great opening Absolutely. cocktail list. You know? Absolutely. You. Well, speaking of uh, passing the baton and picking it back up, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to pick up this conversation again and. Talk more about. Uh, let's talk about. Let's talk about some some like Brooklyn. Yeah, totally. let's do that. So we'll be back in just a moment, and you are listening to Leaf and Jeremy from Donna. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to No Mind on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. The following message is from S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Until now, if you wanted the world-class flavor of European dry-cured ham, you bought prosciutto from Italy or serrano from Spain. You also paid an ultra-premium price that goes with prestigious reputation and international shipping costs. Today, if you want one of the world's finest dry-cured hams, you have another, better option. Suriano Hams, from the Edwards Family Smokehouses in Surrey, Virginia. Their delectable Suriano Hams are all-natural, made only from purebred six-spotted Berkshire hogs. This rare breed is 100% pasture-raised to produce a perfectly marbled meat with just the right amount of internal fat to produce a rich, distinctive flavor. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. And we are back. Listening to the Speakeasy, we have Jeremy and Leaf from Donna in South Williamsburg in the studio today. We've been talking a lot about of uh, about the more neighborhood approach to to bartending and to the establishments that we like to hang out at. And 
a lot of this is born out of just Brooklyn in general. You know, yeah. it's it is neighborhoody. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like Manhattan. Well, and I, and I think it's also it's the return of craftsmanship too. Absolutely, where, where we have a lot of um, what's what's been interesting about the last decade that I've spent mostly in Brooklyn um, is watching college educated. Uh, capable, intelligent people who could go out and get, they could be lawyers or doctors or whatever if they wanted to, and they haven't. They've decided to go to, they've, be, they've opened farms, and they're, they're learning how to become butchers, and they're learning how to become shoemakers, and they're learning how to do all these things. And mm-hmm. bartending is actually, I think, really it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's another part of that same movement where it's another craft that was lost and is being brought back, and this is about creating a neighborhood environment. Absolutely. I've been reading this book. Um, actually, my buddy Tiki Adam, he's been a repeat guest on the show. Um, you guys, yeah, I know, you know, you know, know Adam. Um, he gave me this book, um, which I've had for a couple of years and just now <laughs> opened it. But it's called Shop Class is Soulcraft by Matthew B. Crawford. And in this book, he talks about this guy was like a part of a Washington, D.C. think tank. And he did it for a while, and then he just like realized that he wasn't contributing to society, you know. And exactly like what you were saying, this guy is a a very very smart dude, college educated. Get you know, college educated. <laughs> sorry, I'm choking on this lambic that we're drinking. Um, uh, awesome dude. He decided that after a while, he was like, "Fuck this! I'm going to open up a motorcycle shop." You know, hands on, like doing something that is crafty and Mm -hmm. and meaningful you know and also like what you were just saying about becoming a bartender like with a like a college education it's like that's something that can't be outsourced to another country right it's something you can't do over the internet it's something again like we were talking about before the show you know the napoleon quote where he says um i drink champagne in victory to celebrate and i drink champagne in defeat to console myself so there's always going to be job security for bartenders. There, there is, yeah. There, regardless of whether when things are going tough, then people people need to have a drink to forget about their sorrows, and when things are going well, they have a drink to celebrate. And sure. it, it's been interesting in the going through the recession and being a bartender, having that kind of perspective on it. And I think you know the higher end stuff definitely goes down, and you you know maybe people aren't buying. Uh, fancy cocktail as much as they yeah we all might make a little less money right. here and there but but it's it's more about but it didn't quality. shut down you know it no. doesn't bars yeah. don't ever shut down they're yeah. right it's more about quality than quantity you know yeah. you might be drinking less but you're drinking better right you, mm-hmm. you're you're partaking in something that is more meaningful that's why like you know like Stumptown Coffee and Mass Brothers Chocolates yeah. you know like all these artisanal brands right. and like hands on like even like Salvage denim jeans companies, yeah, yeah. you know, and like uh, like all this stuff. It's like it's higher quality. Mm-hmm. It might cost a little bit more, but you're not having to replace that pair of jeans every six months, right. you know. And it's also it's there's something to be said about the fact that it's being made in the community in which you're living in. You know, yeah. that that it is a part of it's a part of a larger vision for living. I don't know if it's that's conscious, but it's happened. You know, it's happening where. Yeah. You know, I walk out of my apartment and I go to the local coffee store, which is roasting the, their beans there at the premises in which I'm buying the coffee. I go to the, super, or the, the market, the grocery that is sourcing stuff from farms that are upstate. And, you know, that, that 
I think that gets bastardized a little bit and people, you know, kind of sneer at it as like, you know, the yuppie, yuppie culture like taking over. I don't really buy into that, man, because I think that there's actually something really beautiful about it. And there is a price tag that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. But there's also, I think, um, there's a larger ethical, uh, I, I don't know how to say it, but there, there's, there's something about it that is, um, I think, true to how we want to live well, it's it's more mindful and meaningful, and you know, like I've I've worked with people in in my company who have like taken off, like you said, to like go work on farms, yeah, and you know, go to start a a company to make like tents, yeah, you know, to like go camping with, and and you know, I was talking with my my roommate and the drummer in our band earlier today about you know the like motorcycle and surfing thing how it's become more popular lately and you know he he made a good point where it's like you have to be really mindful of what's going on when you're doing it you can't be on your cell phone right you can't be like yeah. texting somebody you can't you be can, disconnected yeah you have mm-hmm. to be extremely focused and like really in tune with I mean, more so with surfing than motorcycles, but in the same way, like nature and like what's around you. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I feel like a lot of people have lost focus on. You know, it's like, but that goes back to the whole neighborhood thing. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's like your bread and butter when you're running, I think when you're running a small business, when you're running a bar, when you're running a restaurant, um, which are the things I have more experience in doing, um, your bread and butter is the neighborhood. If you're trying to become like a destination spot and, you know, you're trying to run a business through the media that you you gain, that's that's a losing battle because the real yeah. the people that are going to keep those doors open are the people who are coming in those doors from two, three blocks away. And if yeah. you can't make something that is that that fulfills their need or desire, you know, something that they can walk out the door and like, oh, yeah, I'm going to walk down the street and go have a drink there. Or I'm going to have a bite here because I, not only do I enjoy what they serve, but I like I believe in it. Like it, it, it fits a part of my life. You know, that's then, you know. Yeah, I'm still amazed by the fact that, you know, with all the social networking that's out there, you know, Facebook and, you know, things like Yelp and, you know, all these reviews you can find. Um, how much everybody still relies on word of mouth, you know, like you yeah, still, absolutely. you know, ask your friends like for a recommendation, you know, and. You know, so that makes it very like it's still very important the personal interactions you have with the customers at the bar, it's, especially in a neighborhood spot, and especially in Brooklyn because Brooklyn people go out in Brooklyn because they don't want to deal with the fussiness of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And, sure, you know, sure. I mean, like I I can read like you said, like I can read Yelp reviews, which I don't believe in anyway. <laughs> right. But you know, yeah. like yeah. I can read any kind of magazine review on a new place, but until you go there and experience it firsthand or like have like someone like a friend that you really trust like you said like tell you about a place Mm -hmm. then you're not necessarily going to go there man it's it's it all comes back to the whole neighborhood and like personal or even like like, getting a bar job or something it's all still net like we all network dude i haven't i haven't (laughs) i haven't gotten we don't go on like linksies or whatever that thing is i haven't gotten a resume for a bartender that i've hired for the last Three years. Yeah, I don't yeah. think I've had a resume for five years. <laughs> I really don't. I don't think I've updated. Yeah. You know, because at a certain point, it's, it's 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 who you know in a way that sounds a lot less nepotistic than that. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it, because it's like you know, can you be vouched for? You know, have have Absolutely. you actually worked with that person? Are they reliable? Do they show up on time? Yeah. Do yeah. they do a good job? Totally. I mean, that's 
Shit, man! I, Jeremy, I hired your wife with <laughs> without, without a resume yeah, because, exactly, like, exactly. I know who she is and she's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, like that. I love that we're talking about this because I don't think we've ever talked about this mm-hmm. in in depth for Brooklyn. But like, it is it is a network and it is community and it's in different neighborhoods, yeah. but it's all mm-hmm. to me like one big neighborhood. And you know, even here at Roberta's, you know, it's it's it feels that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and on that point too, it's like in Brooklyn you can get away with a lot more than you can. Yeah, in, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, I mean that's what makes Brooklyn so fun because the rent isn't so high and people experiment a little bit more than they mm-hmm. do in the city. The risks that you take are are much smaller. Sure. Know? And I think you can you can keep your price point in a place that's a little more accessible for people in yeah. in Brooklyn than you can in other places. Which maybe uh, that's where that that spirit of experimentation comes from. You know, well, so. also there's. Obviously, as well, there's the the audience for that. Yeah, here. absolutely. Sorry, rest of the world. <laughs> Brooklyn's awesome. <laughs> but it's you know it's just it's funny because people I think do uh, I I think people hate on it in a way that's insincere. I think they actually really like it. You know, like what what happened? What is happening in Williamsburg and blah blah blah? And the minute you know they get pushed to the outskirts and rents start raising, they're like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. This is blah 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 yeah. blah. It's no. Nah, this is this is what happens. This is how it goes. And there's a part of it that might be, you know, uh, there's a part of it that might be uh, that might infringe upon the nostalgia of what once was and when it was when everybody was really pioneering over here. Mm-hmm. But there's a part of it that's also about creating a community that really is self-sustaining. Like, how many times do I actually have to go into Manhattan for anything? Sure. Very, very few times now. I mean. Dude, if, I'm I'm so neighborhoody these yeah, days. Yeah. Like I live in Carroll Gardens. I work in Carroll Gardens. Yeah, and I, I can't. And, and I'm personally, <laughs> I appreciate that. I really like that. I like that I have all of all of this access to all these wonderful things that people really care about and put time into and put thought into. Sure. And I can respect. And they're within blocks of my house. You know, I don't I don't even have a bicycle. I, I wish I had a bicycle, but I, I don't even. Have, you know, like I walk everywhere I go. You know. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, like carbon footprint, man. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're we're nearing the end of the show. Um, I wanted to talk real, just very briefly. Um, I mean, obviously, I want to talk more about this, but <laughs> but but you know, and we have time constraints. But um, as far as the the concept with Donna, how have you seen the response? Like, and and what what do you? Basically, like, what, what's, what's the response been, and, like, what are people drinking, and and how is it going? Tequila. I, yeah, lots, <laughs> lots of tequila and tequila. Yeah? But, I mean, we saw a lot of mezcal there, and, you know, the mezcal yeah. tequila drink that's on the menu, the Smoky Peach, is probably the most popular drink. Right. It's, it's like, my worst enemy now, because I'm so tired of making it. But, um, I, I think um, we've, been, we've been very lucky... Uh, in the sense that we were, I feel, I feel that we were welcomed with open arms by our community, um, partially because I think, you know, we, again, have come from that community. So we, you know, people were happy to see, you know, sons of that neighborhood come up and do something. Yeah. Um, and, um, and it's not without its challenges. I think running a new business is always challenging. And um, we're still, uh, you know, we're approaching now our first half of a year of being open um, and if anything, I think the most interesting thing to me is that in all of the ways I think um, we've faltered, 
the response has been to return to the original concept, which is which is a concept that was born out of living in that neighborhood and what I wanted to, what I felt like didn't exist already that I wanted to create, and um, we've uh, we've again you know I think been incredibly lucky and I'm incredibly incredibly grateful to the success that we've had thus far, but. We, we're gonna keep keep making it better every day, you keep know. Rocking. Yeah, you got to. It, like mm-hmm. a new business is, it's like a, it's like a, it's a living, breathing thing that you know can only be made more and more uh, successful, and I think more enjoyable for our customers who come in there. Well, this show has been very enjoyable for me. So, <laughs> uh, I, anytime you guys want to come back, you should uh, come back at Top Shop. Awesome, Top Shop. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the door is always open, except for when. Jack closes it. <laughs> so thank you so much, thank Jeremy. You. I appreciate Lee. it. Yeah. Uh, check out Donna in South Williamsburg. It's on Broadway between White and Kent. That's yep, correct, that's right. yeah. And uh, you guys are open every day for that's business. Right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for coming on the show again, and cheers. 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 All right. We'll see you next week on Speakeasy. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.